This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for February 22nd. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith makes a pre budget pitch, delaying a promised tax cut while boosting the province's Heritage Trust Fund. We'll talk to the Premier about her updated fiscal plan. Plus, the federal government faces renewed pressure to spend more on defense, with the United States urging it to come up with a concrete plan to reach its NATO pledge. We'll hear from the U.S. permanent representative to NATO and the power panel on the political consequences that come with missing that 2% target. The Alberta government says it plans to reinvest billions of dollars in its Heritage Savings Trust Fund. The fund's assets were valued at $21.4 billion last September, but the government hopes to increase its value to almost $25 billion this year, and with plans to increase the fund's value to between $250 and $400 billion by the year 2050. In addition, promised personal income tax cuts will have to wait a year and be phased in responsibly. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith laid out her plan during a television address last night, where she also said a key campaign promise is being delayed. Provincial opposition were quick to come out against the Premier's plan. Sticking with the status quo in next week's budget will mean another year of underfunded health care. The Premier's plan also ignores public education, meaning another year of overcrowded classrooms and exhausted teachers. The Premier's address was a prelude to the province's budget set to be released next Thursday. The Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, joins me now. Premier, welcome back to the show. Hi, David. I want to start with the tax cut you announced last night that you're delaying. This was a central promise from your election while rebuilding your heritage fund to the extent that you announced last night was not. So how do you justify this shift to people who voted for you and this tax cut just last year? Well, the tax cut will be delivered in this mandate. I would love to be able to implement everything within the first year, but sometimes things need to be staged. And we we have to look at what is happening on the international stage with oil and gas prices. I have to look at what is happening as well, quite frankly, with the refinancing of our debt, which $26 billion comes due over the next three years at higher rates. It's going to increase our finance charges. And we want to make sure that when we deliver the tax cut, that it is sustainable and that we're not going to go into deficit. So my finance minister raised a few alarm bells, and we uh, just feel like we should need to take an extra year to be able to implement it with a level of comfort. When it comes to the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, we started down this path a couple of years ago. We uh, announced in our last budget that we were going to be reinvesting all of the investment income in the fund. And now uh, when we get surplus revenue, windfall revenue at the end of the year, one-time revenue, we have an opportunity to put it towards debt, towards savings, and towards one-time spending. That, that came from last year. We're just charting out a pathway for how we can get to 250 to $400 billion by 2050. And but- I'm hoping people are excited about the potential. I've seen some commentary, though, calling this a bait-and-switch or even a broken promise. So how do you respond to that? No, it will be delivered in in our mandate, and we'll put out the the formula and the the time schedule for how that will be implemented. But we have to be able to do two things at once. I mean, on the on the issue of spending increases, operational spending increases, as well as tax cuts, that impacts your budget every single year. When it comes to windfall revenues, that's really up to what the market does on oil and gas prices. So we have to have a different strategy to how we manage the the windfall. So we're we're going to be pursuing both strategies and just make sure that we're doing it in a way that uh, doesn't put us into deficit. Remember, that was our number one promise, is that we wouldn't go back into deficit. And so if it takes a little bit of pacing to make sure that we've got the, the balance right, then I think Albertans will understand. But, uh, Premier, your current budget and, and your mid-year fiscal update both project surpluses uh, for the current year and for the next several years. So, so if you can't deliver 
you know, a key election promise like a tax cut while you have surpluses on the books and projected in future years? I mean, what guarantee is there you're going to be able to do it next year, given all the other factors you've just outlined? Well, the whole point of putting forward a long-term savings plan is that we can't keep relying on natural resource revenue spikes to bail us out. We were fortunate this year. I mean, the revenue surplus that we have was because oil for several months out of the year was above $90 per barrel. Well, it's been below $70 per barrel as well. And to to do a um, long-term revenue cut to taxes on the basis of those kind of volatile streams. It's just not a responsible thing to do. So part of what we're doing is we're increasing our spending at a, a more measured rate so that our revenues will grow faster than our expenditures so that we can afford those tax cuts. And then in the long run, once we start putting significant dollars and see the significant compound interest on that fund, that will ultimately become an avenue for us to replace resource revenues into the future. And so I'm, I'm just asking for Albertans to have a little bit of commitment so that we can do what we have never been able to do before, which is to to make sure that we've got that horizon of, of 25 years and all of the benefit that will come from just a little bit of discipline today. So you told the province there would be a pause on this, but there wouldn't be any cuts in the next budget. But the Health Sciences Association of Alberta, which is one of your health care unions, uh, it's issued a statement saying that Alberta Health Services is, is canceling recruitment for frontline health professionals as part of a hiring freeze to deal with an operating deficit. Well, why is this happening in an important sector like healthcare if you don't need to make cuts? Look, here's the problem that we have in healthcare. We have a large number of our staff that have been burnt out because of the the, the way uh, that AHS has managed it over the last number of years. We're trying to stabilize that and encourage more people to stay in the system and to work full time. And that's part of the, um, the the approach that we're taking. We are recruiting more doctors and creating a new model to fund our doctors and our nurse practitioners so we can take more pressure off of our acute care hospitals. We, we can't continue at this rate where our hospitals are constantly operating at 105%, and we're, we're seeing that is the most expensive door to go into. We have to start building out the other parts of the system. That's what we're doing, and we are not cutting. Uh, we are slowing the rate of increase to a level that we believe is going to be sustainable. It's still a spending increase. We know that as a growing province, we have to make sure that we're keeping up with schools, hospital, roads, as well as doctors, nurses, and teachers. So I, I think people will understand that we can prioritize health and education and social services, as well as having the future in mind with a with a long term sustainable plan to end this roller coaster of resource revenue. Right, but but the union says you're canceling recruitment for frontline health professionals, presumably vacancies no. that are not going to be filled, and there's a hiring freeze. So no. so how how does that stabilize things? No, I mean what we have said is try to find a way to reduce the amount of overtime and try to find a way to reduce the amount of agency nurses. And I can tell you, every single premier is quite concerned about agency nurses. I think I read an article on CBC, in fact, Mm -hmm. that agency nurses charge up to $300 per hour. And that is not a sustainable way for us to be managing our healthcare system by having a a bunch of extra overtime payment, which pays a double time, or having a bunch of part-time agency nurses, which is triple or quadruple time. So those are things that we're looking at, absolutely, because we want to offer long-term, sustainable, full-time jobs to our frontline staff. So, so there is no hiring freeze at Alberta Health Services. There is no recruitment being canceled. Is that what our, our, we have always told? We have always told our front line that we are uh, that we are going to make sure that that is where the investment is. What we're, we're concerned about is the level of managers, managing managers, managing managers. We have heard all kinds of stories about how decisions don't get made on the front line because there's seven layers of decision makers to go through. That's where we're focusing our effort is on streamlining at the management layers, not the front line. 
Okay, you've told your finance minister to keep spending below the rate of inflation plus population growth. And, and, and I know that's not technically a cut, but it is a level of restraint that, that people say will keep services below levels that you need because the spending needs to rise uh, to match inflation, to match population growth. So is that not a way that it will lead to deferred maintenance in schools, in hospitals, delayed hirings, delayed uh, investment in roads? I mean, is that what Albertans should expect over this period of restraint? No, no, they shouldn't expect that at all. What they should expect is that we're going to make sure that the tax dollars that we do have the privilege of spending on their behalf are spent properly. Now, when you look at how much it costs to have somebody in an acute care bed in a hospital, that's $1,500 per day. And what we've d- recently discovered is that there's 1,500 people in acute care beds who should be in some other alternative level of care, whether it's for mental health, addictions, homelessness, rental housing, or long-term care. And, and that is a far more cost-effective way for us to be treating those individuals and giving them better care. So uh, it's up to us to find those efficiencies. And I I think that the the problem is that there's just been a lack of diligence on the management side. It's part of the reason we're taking a hands-on approach so that we can get the right patient in the right place getting the right level of treatment. And and that is going to be surgical work that needs to be done, but it's going to result in better care. And it's also um, it's also going to make sure that we're not um, using our resources, our most expensive resources, inappropriately. But but more broadly, across all of government beyond healthcare, if, if you stay below the rate of inflation and, and don't match population growth, you're going to lose ground against the demand uh, for services, for, for basic infrastructure and, and for schools. Is that not what is potentially going to happen in Alberta? Look, we have to increase our spending in line with our increases in our revenue. And if our revenue is not increasing uh, at at inflation and population growth, then then we can't increase our our spending faster than that. So we have to keep an eye on both of those things to make sure that we're sustainable. Uh, I know that it's fashionable for other governments to, to run unending deficits with no end in sight. I mean, just look at the federal government. They're, they, they've racked up more debt in the last few years than we had in our entire history. That's not what we do in Alberta, because we recognize that families also have a household budget. Families also save. They also have to put money aside for debt, and they also have to manage their, their expenses. And we want to set a good example that we're prepared to do the same kind of hard work that, uh, that Alberta families have to do as well. Right. Well, the federal government took on a lot of that debt to deal with the pandemic and, and so that provinces and municipalities didn't have to. But, but that's, that's another conversation. Uh, the other, the long-term strategic goal you spelled out last night was, was essentially of weaning the province off of its reliability on volatile non-renewable revenues because uh, of the ups and downs uh, of oil and gas revenues. Doesn't that suggest that your moratorium that you put in place on renewable projects was a mistake and, and that the fight against some of the green transition measures is maybe a little bit misguided because this is precisely uh, part of what those issues are, are trying to deal with. Anyone who looks at an electricity system knows that you need dispatchable baseload power. And there is a role for solar and wind, but solar is not dispatchable and neither is wind. When you get to minus 35 on a January 13th day at five o'clock at night and wind isn't blowing and sun isn't shining, you need to have baseload power to be, make sure your lights stay on. And we, we experienced that exact circumstance just a few weeks ago. So uh, when we bring solar and wind back on, and we will be lifting the pause next week, as, as we promised, we are going to bring it on in a way that makes sure that we also have the, the backup so that whether it's plus 35 or minus 35, we're going to be able to make sure that people have secure, reliable power. Right. But was the moratorium a mistake? Because money could have been Possibly. invested and things could have been built to start, you know, uh, generating some of the revenue stability no. beyond this, right? Look, look, David, if the sun doesn't blow and the wind doesn't shine, it doesn't matter if I have 100,000 megawatts of it. We, we have to make sure that we're bringing on a responsible amount of solar and wind 
so that we always have dispatchable power. Dispatchable power, things like nuclear and hydroelectric, geothermal, mm. and, and natural gas. That's got to be the, the basis for how we build our system. And then solar and wind can augment. But I know that there's been this fantasy that's been pushed by the current environment minister that an industrial economy like ours can run off wind and solar and battery power. It can't. Batteries only last an hour. And I just can't tell people, sorry, the sun's going to come, uh, come up at 9 a.m. in the morning. Just uh, make do in the middle. So, no, the, the, the renewables pause was absolutely essential for us to make sure that we got the, the uh, fundamentals right. Speaking of the federal government, you called the federal government delusional adversaries in your address last night. The same day you criticized the prime minister for coming to Edmonton for a housing announcement and, and not talking to you. How, how does any of that help things, improve things, help Albertans? I've been very clear that uh, Stephen Gibbo is uh, an ideological environment minister who has demonstrated zero interest in cooperative federalism and working with us. We have tried over the last year to be at the table so that we could align our objectives to a carbon neutrality by 2050. We're going to continue doing that. But every time we think we're making progress, we get some insane announcement coming from Gibbo. And I think people now see that I've been acknowledging for the last year that the things he wants to achieve are not achievable like everyone knows we can't stop building roads and these are the kind of pronouncements he makes all the time and then he has i guess on this one he had enough pushback he had to walk it back but it's just as ludicrous to propose a net zero power grid by 2035 it's just as ludicrous to put an emissions cap on our industry by 2030 and so all of these are a demonstration i think of a lack of cooperative federalism and it is delusional to think that you can achieve things when the technology is not there to achieve them in such a short time frame. 2050, we are on board with working the federal government on that, but we, we certainly cannot pretend that we're going to be able to achieve some of the unachievable pipe dreams that the, that the federal ministers put forward. Well, the, the announcement by the prime minister on housing yesterday, Edmonton, I don't know if that would fit into the ludicrous category, and his office says they gave your office a heads up the day before that he would be in Edmonton. Were you given the heads up? Did you request a meeting with the prime minister when given notice? Hmm. Do you think that's how he uh, gave Doug Ford the heads up when they did a joint press conference or Bob Canoe when they did a joint press conference or David Eby when they did a joint press conference? He sent a text six hours before and said, oh, by the way, we'll be here. That's not an appropriate way to arrange a meeting or to, to demonstrate that you actually want to have a partnership. I absolutely I would meet with him if he gave enough time, called my office and we were able to set, set, set aside some time. I, I found his approach very immature and unprofessional. And I called him out on it. So next time he comes to the province, he knows I'm quite happy to have a meeting, but I need more than six hours notice. Okay, so it wasn't 24 hours notice. It was six hours notice. That's what you're saying. That's how, how your office found that's out? What, that's what I'm told. That's what I'm told by the one person who said, by the way, we'll be in Edmonton. That's it. Okay, so will you try to set up a meeting with the prime minister in the near future? I, I just, like, you are right. He has had news conferences with other premiers, and he has not had one with you, uh, presumably, or even a meeting with you, as you're pointing out, uh, in this particular time period. Will you try to set one up? Do you think it's possible and worthwhile, given the state of relations with you Look, and the prime minister? I can only tell you what I do. When, when I went to Ottawa to open our office, I put out a request to meet with Minister Champagne, Minister LeBlanc, um, uh, uh, Minister Wilkinson, um, as well as uh, 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 Minister Seamus O'Regan, because those are the four ministers who are on top of the files that are most important to me. And I did have a meeting with Minister Wilkinson. It was very productive and, uh, and, and worthwhile. The others weren't uh, able to make it work. I think it was when the big snowstorm happened, and so mm -hmm. it interfered with their, with their schedule. But I gave them several days 
I think even two weeks notice that I was coming, that this just sort of basic professional courtesy. And so, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to, to meet with our federal counterparts to talk about areas of common ground, but I, I just, I won't tolerate the kind of immaturity of somebody who comes here and then pretends that they tried to engage with us in good faith when they didn't. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Ukraine is ceding ground in its war with Russia. Last weekend, Ukrainian forces were overwhelmed by Russian forces in the eastern city of Avdivka. Ukrainian troops, outgunned and running out of ammunition, were forced to retreat. This footage, released by the Russian Defense Ministry, purports to show Russian troops in the ruins of that city. The capture of the city marks Moscow's biggest victory since Ukraine's failed counteroffensive last year. Julianne Smith is a U.S. permanent representative to NATO. Ambassador Smith is in Brussels. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I, I wanted to start with some comments from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as we approach the second anniversary of the war, where he said that Moscow is exploiting delayed deliveries of Western military aid on the battlefield. Do you agree with President Zelensky's assessment? Well, what I'll say there is that President Putin has been doing his very, very best to convince the entire world that he can wait us out, that the West will ultimately get distracted, NATO will look away, the 50 countries that are supporting Ukraine with security assistance will grow weary and move on to something else. And so he's looking for any opportunity to pursue that narrative. And with the delay in Congress, with our supplemental support, upwards of 60 billion U.S. dollars, I think he does see a window of opportunity. Now, we know that Congress is looking at this. We hope very much that we're going to be able to get that package through and get that support in the hands of our friends in Ukraine as soon as humanly possible. Well, that's where I wanted to go next was to talk about that aid package because, you know, the U.S. has unquestionably been the most important supplier of military aid to Ukraine. But now the 60 billion dollars as you say, is held up, and a lot of people are worried about that. I mean, are you worried that, that U.S. military aid for Ukraine is in doubt going forward? Well, we want to see the supplemental go through, and we do believe here across the NATO alliance that that type of support is absolutely critical. I will say it's not just the United States that's providing important support to Ukraine, and there I really have to tip my hat to our friends in Canada and the many, many other countries across Europe. In fact, all the members of the NATO alliance are providing critical assistance. But U.S. leadership on this has been indispensable. We are running a process called the Ukraine. Ukraine Defense Contact Group. It's sometimes referred to as the Ramstein Group. And that's where we meet with Ukrainians every month and hear what their requirements are and then collectively give them additional forms of assistance. We want to ensure that U.S. assistance keeps flowing. Our friends in Ukraine need that assistance and they need it now. We recently saw some setbacks where the Russians were able to make some advances and take over one of the cities there in the east. We don't want that to 
become a pattern and we don't want it to repeat itself. So we do believe that this assistance is important and it is critical and we'd like to see that supplemental go through as soon as possible. Right, you're talking about the eastern city of Avdivka, which Ukraine essentially had to abandon because their ammunition starved. And you have this situation, Ambassador, as you know, in the House where Speaker Johnson, maybe J.D. Vance in the Senate and former President Donald Trump in the nomination cycle sort of maybe directing things. If you can't get this through Congress because of the opposition from these key players, what can the Biden administration do to get around this, to give extra aid to Ukraine? Well, as our national security advisor has said a couple of times now, we're not really focused on plan B. We are focused on plan A, and that is to get the supplemental through. We believe that there is broad bipartisan support across the House. We saw bipartisan support in the Senate for this. And so we're going to put our faith in that bipartisan support and ensure that the bill comes up for a vote. If it does, I think many folks feel confident that when we get to that juncture, we will be able to rely on that bipartisan support and get it through. There are a couple different paths to get it to the floor, and I know folks in the House are looking at that right now. Uh, and we, again, hope that this will happen in the weeks ahead. There's no doubt about President Biden's support for NATO and support for Ukraine. Um, former President Trump is a different story. He's casting doubt over his commitment to NATO's principle of collective defense. You heard what he said at a rally this month, that he would encourage Russia to do whatever they want to a NATO ally that doesn't meet the defense spending commitment. What are you hearing from your colleagues in Brussels about former President Trump's comments? Well, I do ha get questions here at the across the NATO alliance, obviously, but what I often do is refer folks to the fact that public support for the NATO alliance in the United States is on the rise. I don't know if you've seen the recent numbers, but we recently had an uptick in public support for the alliance, and I think that speaks to the fact that the alliance is stronger and now bigger um, and more effective than ever before, and taking on a whole array of security challenges. But I also put my faith in Congress. Congress has a, a role to play here. We do see deep bipartisan support for the alliance. It is a bipartisan issue. We see Republicans and Democrats come through Brussels all the time, expressing their strong and deep support for this alliance. NATO's about to turn 75 years old. It's going to have its 75th anniversary summit in Washington this summer, which means that for over seven decades, U.S. presidents of all political stripes have supported this alliance. I trust that that will continue. But it's a delicate time, right? Uh, it's an election year. Uh, Ukraine is still at war and the APAC age is held up. I just wonder how anxious are your counterparts uh, about what's happening in terms of uh, America's ability to deliver uh, on its stated support and, and what might happen should the election go uh, Donald Trump's way in November? Well, I spent some time at the Munich Security Conference this past weekend, and as has been previously reported, the mood was a bit dark in Munich, and that's tied to multiple things. I think there are concerns about our friends in Ukraine. We want to make sure they continue to have the ammunition and the air defense they need. There was the breaking news about Navalny's death, um, which obviously really cast a dark shadow on the gathering. There are questions about the U.S. supplement 
supplemental, as, as we just talked about. There are a lot of elections, not just in the United States, but many elections in Europe as well that raise questions. So, yes, by and large, there are concerns across the alliance here in Europe at the Munich Security Conference, but this alliance isn't pausing for one minute. We're not stuck in neutral. NATO is moving out on a whole series of ways to enhance its deterrence and defense, continue to get support to our friends in Ukraine, and apply pressure on Moscow to alter Putin's calculus. You mentioned uh, earlier, Ambassador, uh, Canada's uh, support for Ukraine, um, but one of the criticisms for, for the Canadian contribution is that this country is one of the NATO allies that isn't close to the 2% uh, spending commitment that everybody agreed to, and Canada doesn't have a timeline or a clear date on when or if it, it's going to hit that target. Does that disappoint the United States that Canada hasn't uh, spelled out responsibilities that we're seeing from other NATO members? Well, at the top, I have to say, we certainly applaud everything that Canada is doing for Ukraine. They're also taking a really important leadership role in Latvia by heading up one of the multinational battalions there. They make important contributions, critical contributions to NORAD and in the Arctic. But when it comes to defense spending, all allies committed over a 10-year period to move towards spending 2% of their GDP on defense. We started with three countries meeting that target. We're now at 18. Soon we're going to have more. What we want to see our friends in Canada do is have an actual plan to get to 2%. It is important that they have increased defense spending in Canada, and we again, we applaud those efforts. But Canada is hovering now just above 1.3% and has no concrete plan to get to that 2%, while other allies have made and created plans to get there, if not this year, in the next few years. So those timelines and those plans are important because it showcases a shared commitment and it showcases intent. And so here inside the NATO alliance and certainly back in Washington, we very much encourage our friends in Canada to develop some sort of concrete plan to meet that 2% pledge. Well, just as a final point, Ambassador, what kind of a timeline uh, would you like to see there? This has been a live conversation in this country, as you know, certainly since uh, the Ukraine war uh, started after Russia's invasion. What kind of a timeline would you think is credible and acceptable for a country like Canada to hit that 2% target? Well, obviously, the pledge was intended to last for 10 years. So the goal was to meet the target by this year. We have a handful of allies that, for a variety of reasons, will not meet the target this year, but they will in the next few years. I'll leave it to our friends in Canada to determine the specifics. But again, the importance here is relaying the message that collective security is not free, and it requires requires countries, all of us, to come up with a concrete plan to meet that 2% mark. Julianne Smith, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Pressure is mounting on the Canadian government to meet its defense spending obligations under NATO. Canada currently falls well below spending 2% of its GDP on defense. And while the Liberal government has increased investments, there's still no plan to hit the 2% commitment. And now the U.S. is calling on Canada to change that.
What we want to see our friends in Canada do is have an actual plan to get to 2%. It is important that they have increased defense spending in Canada, and we again, we applaud those efforts. But Canada is hovering now just above 1.3% and has no concrete plan to get to that 2%, while other allies have made and created plans to get there, if not this year, in the next few years. When the prime minister was asked whether he has a date in mind for when Canada may reach that 2%, he said, quote, we'll put forward our budgets and our proposals at the appropriate times. And you can watch my full interview with Ambassador Smith coming up next hour. But first, we're going to bring in the power panel on this. Matthew Dubé is a former NDP MP. Sherelle Evelyn is the managing editor of The Hill Times. Kate Harrison is a conservative political analyst. And Cameron Amott was director of communications for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, good to see you all, gang. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Uh, Cameron, I'd like to start with you if I can. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this from Americans in your time working for Prime Minister Trudeau, but this is public pressure coming from our biggest ally. And Ambassador Smith said uh, collective security isn't free. How, how do you think the government will react to this? Well, firstly, I think it's not new, David. I mean, this is normal. American governments have long called on their allies and Canada to spend more on defense. Um, but I think the government really shouldn't be defensive about this. I think there are some really concrete ways that we can talk about our contributions to the alliance. And beyond that, we can talk about everything we're doing to support Ukraine. Uh, and there's an opportunity there, especially with what we've been experiencing over the past few weeks with the Conservatives backing away from supporting Ukraine and the ridiculous vote on the uh, free trade deal. So I think that's probably how they're going to respond. They're going to talk about real things we're doing <clears throat> to support the alliance. You know, we've got our battle group in Latvia. We just saw an announcement to send more drones to uh, the Ukrainians. And there's so much talk around the world of countries turning their backs, losing interest in the war in Ukraine. And Canada has been really steadfast. The prime minister has been one of the, you know, the, the main leaders refusing to back down and always bringing it up. So I think that's how they're going to focus on it. And that's how they should not feel defensive over um, a criticism of our of our defense spending. So, Kate, this this comes in a week where we heard uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg also said that he expects Canada to deliver a plan when they hit 2%. And, and, you know, when the whole conflict in Ukraine started, Canada was on a, a long list of people who weren't meeting 2%. It's now on a much smaller list and on a list of one when it comes to actually having a plan to hit 2%. So does that change this dynamic at all? Yeah, it, it does. There's really two issues here, I think, David. One is kind of the immediate pressure this puts on the Canada-U.S. relationship. There's already been some signaling from Donald Trump, if he should be elected, that maybe he would be less likely to support allies that aren't meeting that 2% target. Uh, so we certainly can't say that we weren't warned in terms of what the expectations are between his forewarnings uh, and those uh, like the uh, the NATO ambassador that, that you just spoke with. Uh, so there's been ample warning, I think, we do have to keep in mind that there's kind of three M's to defense spending. There's money, of course, and that is important. I think the Liberals have been very focused on the narrative around defense, and Cameron just alluded to contributions to Ukraine. I think those have been good. In some ways, we punched above our weight. Um, but we are too focused a bit on the telling the story as opposed to the actual dollars and cents. And I think when our allies are coming to the table with money, we need to be prepared to do the same. Uh, but there's also material and there's manpower. And that is where Canada has really fallen down. Uh, it's one thing to commit to a target. It's another thing to be able to successfully procure in this country. And we mm -hmm. see from a number of procurements how difficult that has been and how costly. Uh, and recruitment and retention efforts in the forces are on the decline. So until we can fix those two things, uh, the money... Uh, 
figure is good, nice to have, uh, but our actual contribution on defense is going to be pretty limited if we can't fix some of those systemic issues. Okay, I'm going to go to the fourth end, Matthew, because uh, Kate touches on some good points there in, in that, uh, and, and Murray Brewster and I were talking about this earlier today, that even if you ramped up all the spending and bought all the jets and bought all the tanks, you don't have the people to drive them and fly them, and there are still those challenges. But does this renewed sort of push by the U.S. change things at all for the federal government? Well, I think, you know, you, you pointed it out a moment ago that the issue here is the, it's the country, the one country without a plan. I think that's, that's a key mm-hmm. thing here is they're not saying you need to spend the money tomorrow. They're saying at least start thinking about how you're going to get there. It was actually pretty tame in that sense in comparison to, you know, the, the threats essentially from, from Donald Trump about not stepping in to defend allies uh, if they don't contribute properly. This was much more nuanced, I think, despite it still being straightforward. <laughs> yeah. um, but th- I think that's a problem, and recruitment's long been a problem for the Canadian forces as well. I, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and there's larger issues at play there. I think there's there's been challenges with trust, you know, when you look at some of the internal issues that have taken place and everything that I think put a damper on people's willing to participate. A lot of these conflicts feel very far away as well. Uh, so there's a lot of work that needs to, to take place there to, to bump that up. But also governing is priorities, right? Like there's there's other things the government is focused on now as well. And I suspect that that's something that I, I assume they will bring up to say that there's there's a lot of domestic issues right now. And, you know, th- I would perhaps disagree slightly with, with one thing Kate said is I do think, in fairness to the government, the contributions to Ukraine, you know, are, are more than just storytelling. Like there are tangible things that are being that are being provided. Uh, but to my knowledge, those those don't count, but it still contributes to the larger goals of, of NATO. So, uh, there, I think there's a bit there's a bit of a few things at play here. Um, but the at the end of the day, it, we don't want to have that situation where we don't have a plan. And I think that's really where the government has has fallen flat a little bit. Cheryl, should take on this one. Well, yeah, I do think it comes back down to that idea of not having a plan. We are you know, very long overdue for our own defense policy update. It's no real yeah. surprise that there's no uh, framework to show NATO when they don't even have a framework to show Canadians as to what exactly our priorities are when it comes to defense. So figuring that out, first and foremost, is going to be really, really important. And you know, it's been since, what, 2017, since the last plan came out. They said they were, you know, I think it was budget 2022 that they said, okay, we're moving forward. This update's going to come through in last November. They said, oh, we're going to revise and recrafting and a lot of it does from what we uh, what we understand obviously we don't know for certain because nobody will come out and say it that has a lot to do with money and our own domestic fiscal situation so if we don't have the money to spend on defense and our military and all everything that goes along with it um, then it's going to be really difficult to say yes we're going to put forward this plan other politicians can say we're going to work towards it But other politicians uh, have also been part of the previous governments who were really quick to cut defense spending. So it's really hard to see where there's a clear path forward on this. So Cameron, help me understand, if the the Canadian government isn't necessarily going to do it, why did they sign on to the communique committing to it, right? Uh, I know this predates uh, uh, this government, but they signed on, I think it was in Wales last year or whatever, uh, recommitting themselves to hitting 2%. Like, why sign something if there's no plan to get there? Yeah, well, it, it's an aspirational target, right? And it, the, a lot of the problems that Kate pointed to, I think she's right. There's uh, some serious structural issues that have existed in the Canadian military for a long time. Um, but under the last government, there were some real low points when it came to spending on defense. And, you know, in, when uh, Trudeau came to power, made some real changes and major investments to try and fix procurement problems, to try and fix recruitment issues, 
And that, you know, these are not things that can be solved even in a couple years. They take a long time. So I think we saw, and the ambassador pointed to these uh, increases in spending that we've seen progressively over the last few years, and they're going to continue. Um, but there are some real serious contributions that Canada is making to the alliance in terms of manpower, in terms of training, in terms of equipment. And every few weeks, we're seeing new announcements that they're making to support Ukraine. So I think that's what they're going to keep having to talk about. Um, I mean, you ask a good question about, about the target, but I think what Canadians will ultimately care most about is what are we doing specifically to help Ukraine and to play our role within the alliance. And I think um, there are some really good things that the government can keep pointing to, and they shouldn't feel like the debate only needs to be about this spending target. There are other things that, the, that Canada realistically, given the resources that we have and all the other pressures that the government faces when it's coming up with its budget, that we can make, and that's what they should focus on. Kate, uh, can, can that argument survive uh, what appears to be, uh, if not declining, but slowing U.S. support? and other challenges in the European bloc. I mean, Ukraine had to abandon the defense of a town or city in its eastern territories because it's running out of ammunition and it couldn't sustain the defense. So how do we reconcile those? Yeah, it, I'm mindful of that Angus Reid poll that pointed to kind of across the political spectrum decline in support um, for uh, our, our efforts in Ukraine. I, I would not align with kind of the the view there. Like I think, or I think our contributions are very, very important. But of course, uh, it is harder to see the bigger picture on foreign policy and defense spending when there's trouble at home. Uh, and I think for a lot of Canadians who are feeling the pinch in their pocketbooks, and again, this is across the political spectrum, but because we don't have a strong economy here and people are feeling very challenged here, making the case for more foreign aid funding and more defense funding is really, really difficult. I think in terms of your question, David, is this going to hold? Uh, I don't think it's going to hold much longer after uh, November if Trump is elected president. I think there's going to be a huge amount of pressure to meet that target very, very quickly. Uh, so we need to absolutely have a plan to get there, but we also need to be thinking thinking about how we can actually grow the economy so that we can meet that aspirational target. Uh, how have we been hamstrung in terms of truly unlocking the potential of the economy in order to get there, as opposed to just shifting budgets back and forth? You know, Matthew, it's a very different uh, political conversation in the United States when it comes to defense spending, right? It is a central tenet of, of you know, their, their foreign policy and, and industrial policy in, in many ways. How does uh, any government make the case to Canadians at a time of, like, housing challenges, affordability challenges, that you need to move Move, like I think it's about $18 billion extra each and every year uh, Canada would have to spend to get to 2%. Yeah, I think it's comparing ourselves to the U.S. on a whole litany of issues is always a precarious exercise course, because, yeah. you know, we think the, the grass is greener here and then, you know, it turns out that on some issues we're not, not that much further ahead. But one thing we've seen in the U.S. that's pretty pronounced is, the, is there's, there's more and more of a less of a fringe and more of a mainstream thinking in the Republican Party, for example, of being against, you know, foreign aid and things like that, that I mm -hmm. think is far more pre prevalent um, in the last number of years in the U.S. than what, what we see here in Canada. But, I mean, I would absolutely agree with what Kate was saying. Like, the, it's not just in, in the data. You, it's anecdotal. It's just pure politics of it, ultimately, that it's hard to make a case when people are going through the kind of... Uh, uh, financial pain that they are right now to to invest in these other in these other pieces and particularly at a time for the government where you know coming out of eight and a half years of of a lot of spending where there's political pressure on them to spend less but then there's also commitments that they've made uh, to 
create new programs, right? Like with mm. the negotiations going on with the NDP now, for example. Right. So right. They're, they're feeling pressure from everywhere. And I think it's, that's why I come back to the plan issue. Like they're not being asked to spend it tomorrow morning. And I think that's the out for them is to at least start thinking about it and look serious about it. Um, but it's important not to pay lip service either to what someone like Donald Trump is saying, because ultimately uh, he doesn't, it's not about having everyone spend what they, what they should be spending for him. It's about delegitimizing the institutions yeah, more yeah. than anything. So we, I think when the government's addressing these things, uh, I appreciate the, the tone today of the American representative, but we also can't buy into or, or play along with that type of narrative either because that's also counterproductive to the, the goals of NATO and its existence, frankly. Right, and, and Sherelle, really, if you look at it too from a domestic political consideration, it's not like even the conservatives, they've said they'll work towards the NATO target, but they've never said, yes, 2% come hell or high water. That's not something Pierre Polyev is, is putting in the shop window right now either. No, he's not, and he is... What he is talking about is things like, you know, cutting foreign aid and, Mm -hmm. you know, areas like that, which does play very well with his base. Although people have looked at those numbers um, and they've and they know that and they said, you know, it's a fraction of what it is that we actually need to get to. So you could cut all the foreign aid. We're still not going to get to that two percent target. So you have to do a lot more. And that's and and. And that's, it's a political, it is a political uh, strategy. But at the same time, you also have to think about when we're thinking about um, spending for the military and, and defense spending, and people are talking about, you know, on this panel, they're talking about, you know, how times are tough um, domestically for, for Canadians here at home. That includes the people who are members of the military. Like, we keep hearing all of these stories about people who can't afford a place to live. Yeah. So spending on defense, spending for the military, it all does absolutely have to come back to what is happening here at home. Cameron, uh, I saw you nodding there when uh, Sherelle mentioned uh, cuts to foreign aid. Uh, the, it goes kind of part and parcel with this whole issue of, of defense spending and, and Canada's role abroad. I, how, do, how do you see that potentially playing out with what the Conservatives are, are, are promising to do? Well, as she said, it plays well to a portion of their base, but can you imagine the damage that would have on Canada's reputation if we made the kind of cuts that, that he's suggesting? I mean, at a time when the world is looking at Canada to play a leadership role, when there are so many conflicts and so much difficulty that vulnerable people are facing, when not even, you know, the dam- putting aside just the damage it would do to our reputation and how, how it would hurt our image as a country, it would do almost nothing to solve the problem mm-hmm. that we're talking about here. And it, the math just doesn't add up. So it's a pretty absurd um, suggestion from for, the, for Mr. Polyev to make. And of course, just like so many of his other, the the other things he says, it's it's just a pretty empty, hollow statement. There is, we're talking about you know government putting forward a plan. There's not even a, you know anything resembling a plan from him. So he also, um, if he's talking about this issue and putting pressure himself on the government, with all the hypocrisy that he uh, bears on on uh, supporting Ukraine, he has to face a lot of I think uh, pressure as well. Okay, Kate, you got a quick last thought? I take yeah, we could port our entire foreign aid budget, which is about $10 billion a year, over to military spending and still not meet the 2% GDP. Um, so if we're going to talk about you know, our commitments to foreign aid, there is a debate there about whether or not we're meeting our contributions, but uh, that entire budget could mo- move over. We still wouldn't hit that target. And when it was first raised in 2019 under Andrew Scheer, modifications to foreign aid spending, uh, he talked about a fairly substantial cut, and I don't think Canadians really blinked about it. So I would challenge that it's an idea for the conservative base. I actually think there's a number of Canadians that would like to see a little bit more focus for that spending to see kind of the impact of their dollars and where they're being distributed. 
Okay, uh, we got to leave it there, gang. Uh, thank you so much. I want to thank the Power Panel for joining me uh, today and, and navigating these topics. Cameron Ahmad, Kate Harrison, Cheryl Evelyn, and Matthew Dubay. Thanks so much, gang. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.